0: So Colossians chapter 1, and reading verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we bow this morning with thankful hearts for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the provision you have made on our behalf, and Father, that you have called us out of a world of darkness. You've called us out of spiritual death into life and light. And we are so grateful for this work of redemption. We thank you for these who are gathered with us this day. We pray, Lord, that as we open the Word of God, as we have read, that you'll give us discernment and understanding concerning the importance of this epistle that Paul wrote to the church of Colossians. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have understanding hearts and minds to receive the truth, Lord, that we can see that The same things that were plaguing uh, the early church after you had birthed it uh, through the Holy Spirit and dwelling within men, that, Lord, these same problems exist and remain today, but yet the answer remains the same as well, which is that Jesus is all-sufficient and preeminent above all. And so we thank you for this wonderful truth. May we be mindful of that as we continue now in the study of this uh, significant epistle. And, Lord, I pray that for every individual that is gathered here, we know that there are many burdens and needs, no doubt Lord, there are those that no doubt are with us who know not Christ. We pray that your Spirit might draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might understand the need of redemption. And for we who have been redeemed, we thank you for the privilege to gather as we do this day, and we ask that in all things may you be glorified and honored. And now may the very words of my mouth and the meditation, the thought of my heart, Lord, be pleasing in your sight, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. As I mentioned last week, I provided you an overview of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, and within the overview we considered several facts about this epistle, and I want to review some of those again briefly, much, a much abbreviated version of what we looked at last week. But first, uh, Colossians is one of four epistles that Paul wrote while in prison. I explained again and reminded you the four prison epistles include Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And second, Paul identified as an apostle when greeting the Colossian church, even as we read this morning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Paul identifying as an apostle is significant in this letter since Paul had never personally met the believers which made up this church at Colossae. Paul's identity as an apostle was, of course, therefore one of authority concerning matters of the church as God had ordained him to be an apostle. Now you have to remember that as an apostle, of course, there was, uh, the scriptures teach us, of course, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so Christ, of course, is that ultimate foundation, but the apostles' teaching was that not of themselves, it was the teaching of Jesus Christ and his teaching. And as God, through Christ, had revealed his will and his his truth concerning the church to the apostles, we see that Paul, as an apostle, addressed the churches um, many times as an apostle, but especially in this case with the church at Colossae because this church was not established by Paul. In, in fact, in all probability, they had never ever met up to this point and still not yet at this point. So, Paul being a stranger to them as far as in the flesh, yet... He had a concern and compassion and desire for this church to grow as though he had established the church. Because Paul's focus, of course, was not a selfish, self-centered one, but he had no agenda. He simply desired that the gospel be propagated and that the churches that were founded, especially Gentile churches, because God had called Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles, that these Gentile churches would flourish in the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be established upon this truth and continue to know him. And so Paul identifies as an apostle, and, and this identity, again, being one of authority, because they had never met Paul, they, they knew who Paul was. And so he had the ability to write as an apostle in an authoritative manner, not not based on his own preferences or agenda or his own selfish desires, but rather based upon the fact that Jesus Christ himself, when Paul was in Arabia, if you recall, for a three-year period of time... Paul explains that it was the Lord Jesus who revealed this gospel to him, not man. It wasn't the other disciples or apostles that taught him the truth of the gospel. It was Christ himself that appeared to Paul and spent the same amount of time, so to speak, as he did the other disciples in his earthly ministry and teaching them. He spent that time with Paul, personally teaching Paul and revealing his truth to Paul. And So Paul did not learn this of men. So Paul had that authoritative um Apostolic teaching because of God's calling in his life. Third, we've seen that Paul's signature style of writing is demonstrated in this letter of Colossians. First, we see Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2, which we read this morning. Then we see Paul's thanksgiving for the faithfulness of the Colossian believers, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Then Paul's prayer for the church, uh, verse, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And then Paul's summary of the power of the gospel in verses 12 through 14, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, verses 15 through 19, the purpose of this redemption in verses 20 through 29. And so this is very common for Paul to write in such a manner. And so we see Paul's, not only his identity as an apostle listed and named as such, but also we see his identity even in the signature style, if you will, of the epistle itself. Then number four, we looked at the estimated date of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul was a prisoner at Rome during the time in which he had written this letter to the church at Colossae, placing the estimated date of Paul writing the epistle sometime between believed to be estimated A.D. 58 to A.D. 63. And we see this to be true um, as well that Paul, of course, we believe, wrote this epistle with the epistle of Ephesians are around that same time and there are many uh, similarities between the epistles as you look at their writing and we've even referred to that in Philippians as well for that matter. Number five, the recipients of the letter of Colossians. Not only did Paul not establish the church at Colossae as I previously mentioned, but he had never ever personally interacted with the believers of the church at Colossae. Nonetheless, we see that Paul was completely, as I've already stated, focused on and committed to the spiritual growth of all the churches. And so this was not, Paul had, again, no personal agenda attempting to cause the churches, which he established by the will of God, to flourish above or beyond those that were already established or those who became established by other uh, believers, other apostles, other disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number six, we see the theme of this letter to the Colossians. I pointed out to you last week the theme of Colossians, when viewed within the scope of the previous epistles, within their canonical placement of Scripture, how they are placed in our Bibles, they, it provides a progression of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now again, let me remind you, in the big picture of Scripture, obviously, we know that uh, the central or primary person is the Lord Jesus Christ, the central or primary theme is God's eternal redemptive purpose and the central or primary purpose is the revelation of God's glory. And so again, God's glory is revealed through redemption in Jesus Christ. And so when we understand that, then we see even in the epistles, as they are canonically placed within the Scriptures, in their order, that they provide for us a progressive revelation of the Lord Jesus. For instance, I'll remind you again, the theme of Romans is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The theme of 1 Corinthians is sanctification in Jesus Christ. The theme of 2 Corinthians Corinthians, is the comfort of God in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, the reason the second epistle of Paul to Corinthians provides the comfort of God, and that is the focus, is because in the first epistle, that of absolute rebuke of the Corinthian church, they were carnally minded, they were not living according to their calling, which God had purposed for them to live in, and so Paul is writing to rebuke them, and God used that rebuke to then change them. So in 2 Corinthians, now they also are identifying in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that they are suffering just as Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is acknowledging that they have now submitted to the rebuke and instruction and correction which had been provided, and as they identify with Christ and in the gospel, they are going to suffer just as Paul and all others identify with Christ in the gospel suffer. And so Paul gives them this comfort, and he explains to them the comfort. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians that they are to comfort one another as they also have received such consolation or comfort. And so talking about, again, the persecution against the church for the sake of the gospel. Then we see in uh, the theme of Galatians, of course, the sufficiency and or the exclusivity of Jesus Christ how that when the Judaizers came into the Galatia churches that they were saying you need circumcision, as the Judaizers would say Judaism would demand, and also Christ, that's fine, but you must follow the uh, laws of Judaism if you're truly going to be a follower of God. And so Paul comes to this church through by way of letter and explains and emphasizes, again, corrects and rebukes them, instructs them, but he tells them Jesus Christ is infinitely more than enough that you need nothing more other than Christ, and that you don't have to supplement Christ, that God has been seen fit to redeem us through the person of Christ. He is all sufficient. The theme of the book of Ephesians is that of the position God has provided us in Jesus Christ. The theme of the book of Philippians, as we just finished up a few weeks ago, is the excellency or superiority of Jesus Christ, how that he, of course, everything else is inferior to him. And then he moves on now to the epistle to the Colossians, in which the emphasis and theme is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me of this text. Colossians 1. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him, all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Christ, might have the preeminence. Now, let me, let me uh, correct for you a, a common false misunderstanding of this text. And it's one that I hear people often speak and make statements concerning this, and they're truly missing the truth. I mentioned this last week. Notice here in this epistle, Paul does not say that you make Jesus before all things. He doesn't say that you make him first in your life. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have probably said that before? Make Jesus, listen, let me explain something to you again. You do not make Jesus anything. You do not make him Lord. You do not make him Savior, as I've often said, any more so than you could make him creator. He is who he is. And so we do not make him anything. That's not what Paul says, and that's not what the Scriptures are teaching us. Notice, this is a definitive statement. He is before all things. All things are created by him, and all things exist for him. It doesn't matter whether you, whether you believe that or not. These are the facts. These are, this is the truth. And so the call is not that we make Jesus something. The call and the exhortation is that we acknowledge the truth of who he is, of who God has made him to be, who God has declared him to be. Notice, he is before all things. It does not tell us, put Jesus first. No, you acknowledge that he alone has this rightful place. It is Christ and Christ alone. As we've seen in the Carmen Christi and in uh, Philippians, where Paul states so clearly that uh, as highly exalted above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Both in heaven and in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue would confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this is important you recognize that. And then number seven, we looked at the problem of Gnosticism, which was evident within the church at Colossus. Again, I told you one definition of Gnosticism, which I found to be somewhat uh, accurate and also a little humorous, is that someone stated that to define Gnosticism is like trying to nail a floppy fish down. It's a difficult thing to do because Gnosticism is such broad-based and, it, and, and, and cha- it ever changes or did. And so Gnosticism, let me sum it up like this. They definitely uh, denied the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, meaning that God is, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in the flesh, right? And so they denied that. They would teach either, and it's more than this alone, but one of the teachings of Gnosticism would have been that that. The spirit of God came upon Jesus. Remember, for instance, whenever he uh, was baptized, and then at his death, the spirit of God left Jesus, the man Jesus, and not in giving up the ghost. No, that God just separated Himself from His Son in the sense of that He no longer was deity. Is basically the point being made. The other argument of Gnosticism would have been that uh, that Jesus. So one would have been obviously that Jesus. Uh, possess the spirit at times and then not at other times that he is not deity in the flesh. The other, of course, is that uh, he did not come in a literal physical flesh such as as we understand it to be. And so it's obviously denying this, this truth, again, of the hypostatic union of Christ, meaning he is fully God and fully in the flesh. And remember, in the fullness of time, Galatians tells us that God manifested his son in the flesh, being born of a woman. And so we understand that this was the purpose and plan of God. But Jesus was not created at the time of his manifestation. He is before all things. The flesh, he came the flesh, but he's always been. And one of the beautiful truths of this as well that you need to acknowledge and understand is that now he is in a glorified body at the right hand of God the Father, ever living. His very presence makes intercession on our behalf as our high priest. So he was manifested in the flesh prior to the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh, prior to the time in which he was born, Jesus did not possess a physical body but yet he was manifested in the flesh. He'd always been with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1. 1, 1. The Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was not created, he was manifested in the flesh. But now, since he took on that flesh, the flesh physically died. Jesus, of course, went to the Father, spiritually speaking. The person of Christ went to the Father And then he came back and took on a glorified body, which he will forever, eternally now dwell within. So we have a physical Savior who is in a glorified body that one day we as well will share in a glorified body like as his. And so that one day will be the case. Colossians 2, 8 through 10, Paul warns against such Gnostic teaching, and, and, and Gnosticism. Gnostic is to know, of course. That's what it's derived from. And it also taught that there was some mystical revelation of God to man. And only certain, it was very uh, esoterical in the sense that it would, only, it would only relate to people who had this special knowledge, this mystical knowledge. Not talking about God manifesting His Son in the flesh, and not talking about knowing Christ through redemption in that regard, but rather that there's some mystical part to this salvation. Listen, there's nothing mystical about salvation. It is spiritual, it is eternal, but it's not mystical. And so we experience a genuine birth, a new birth, a spiritual new birth. And so Gnosticism taught such things, and Paul warned against it in Colossians 2, 8-10. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Look at the emphasis here. It is in the very manifestation of the person of Christ taking on flesh that the fullness of the Godhead is manifested. This is God in the flesh. It's not the Father in the flesh, it's the Son in the flesh. But God and the Father are one. (laughs) And so it's the Spirit of God who is within this flesh, but... God and the, uh, the Father and Son are one, and the Spirit as well. So this, of course, is... And by the way, I will say to you again, anytime I mention uh, the doctrine of the Godhead in this regard, or mention the word Trinity, quote-unquote, I will tell you that uh, the proper, I believe, absolutely a proper belief concerning this is what is theologically referred to as Trinitarian monotheism. We believe that there is one God monotheism, one God, but yet there are three distinct persons that make up The eternal Godhead. Now, I will say to you, I have absolutely no illustration to provide to demonstrate that because there is none. Nothing can demonstrate that. We can't understand or comprehend the truth of who God is in that regard. So, look, any illustration, any example you've ever heard in an attempt to describe the Godhead, just throw it out because it's garbage. That's kind of the point. The point is, He is God who has made Himself known to us, but we can never comprehend Him. And we can't even comprehend his very person, even though he has manifested himself to us. We cannot describe the Godhead apart from what I just explained to you. And there's no, nothing on this earth that can correspond in a proper example of the Godhead. So as we begin our study of this epistle now, this introduction to the Book of Colossians, it is imperative that we keep in mind, again, the problem of Gnosticism that was present within the church at Colossae. And and Paul not only addresses this within the epistle, but absolutely debunks the absurd claims of Gnosticism through explaining the eternal preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will begin our study by examining Paul's greeting to the church at Colossae. So let's look at the greeting of Paul here as we see it in verse 1. Now let me mention again, it's not uncommon as we begin a new study of any book or epistle The overview and introduction overlap to some degree, obviously, because we're kind of addressing some of the same things that we pointed out in the overview. And we will see that to be true as well within this introduction of Colossians. So look at first how Paul identified himself. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. Now, Paul begins this epistle identifying himself, again, as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, as I've previously mentioned, Paul identif- identified himself as an apostle to the Colossians intentionally. Having again never met them, he, having only heard their faith and faithfulness to the gospel by Epiphras, we understand that he therefore came to them in this authoritative manner. Look at verses 4 through 8 with me. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So since these believers had only... Uh, heard of Paul's faithfulness to the gospel, it is also Paul who heard of their faithfulness to the gospel by the testimony of others. And Paul addressed them, therefore, with his apostolic authority. Now, such a claim by Paul must never be viewed as arrogance. The fact that Paul says, Paul, an apostle. Again, this isn't Paul wearing a gold badge that says, Apostle Paul, uh, everywhere he went. Paul is simply stating, I have been given authority by God to declare these truths to you, and this is by the will of God. It is established upon the testimony that God has called me, which is clear and evident throughout the time of my, since the time of my conversion, even by the testimony of the other churches, of course. So this was not an arrogant statement. It was not one which should be viewed as though it was that of arrogance, but rather it is one of tremendous responsibility. Paul took his calling by God seriously. And when addressing such matters as was necessary within this letter, he deemed it significant to remind the recipients of the epistle of his God-given authority from which he had written the epistle. Paul stated in this greeting that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, notice, by the will of God. Paul was not self-appointed, and that was evident by the testimony of his life. He didn't claim to be self-appointed. And it was not unusual for Paul to make such a statement in his introductory greeting. I want to read some of these to you and show you the commonality between them. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. By the way, that's very interesting if you recall with me in our study of Romans years ago now. In the first verse where Paul says, called to be an apostle, separated. And in most cases when we think of separation the preposition that would be used following that would be what? Separated from. Separated from. Usually we would say we're separated from someone or something. But notice what Paul says. Separated unto the gospel. Now Paul will explain that he was separated from his his. Uh, the condemnation of his sin throughout the epistle. But the emphasis in his identity is not in what he has been separated from, it's who he has been separated unto and the gospel to which he has been separated. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Galatians 1.1, Paul an apostle not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Titus 1.1-3, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul's claim to be an apostle, notice, in every account, was backed by his explanation that he was an apostle by God's will and God's command. Furthermore, his apostleship was backed by more than his claim, but by the power of God demonstrated in his life and his unwavering and selfless commitment to the gospel, even at a personal cost. In 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12, we read, I am become a fool in glorying, Paul says, ye have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing." Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Notice what Paul is saying. He says, oh, there's nothing lacking in me, no power that is lacking, no gift that is lacking, that is clear evidence that I am an apostle, and yet I am nothing. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul's identity as an apostle of Jesus Christ, we see from all of his writing was not one he considered to be prestigious in a physical sense. Again, when someone talks about, let's look at ministry for a moment, whether it be a pastor, whether it be an elder, whether it be a deacon, whatever it may be, someone who walks around, someone who taunts, someone who who goes and begins to speak and explain about who they are and their introductions are always about their position, there's really a problem with that if that is what they find to be their identity. Paul is not saying, oh, I'm identified as in the sense of, look at me, now serve me. That's not what he's saying. In fact, you'll find that he served as an apostle at a cost. A personal cost. So he was not looking for accolades. Neither was he looking for people to bow and respect him when he walked through the door, so to speak. But rather, he wanted them to understand the authority from which he taught. Not that they followed him, but that they would follow Christ. Because he proclaimed Christ to further certify Paul's apostleship at the very time of his conversion. Again, it was the Lord who announced that he had called Paul as a chosen vessel. He did this to Ananias. And I reference this often, but in Acts chapter 9, 10-16 through 16 we read, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And it's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. To show or to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So, Paul suffered as an apostle called of God. It wasn't, again, a, a, a position of status and prestige as many have tried to make positions, if you will, of ministry today, even within the church. This caused Paul not only. Uh, affection from others and not only cost him the care of others but it cost him his very life to be an apostle of the lord jesus christ second the letter b notice paul identified his audience verse two to the saints and faithful brethren in christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ in this verse paul points out that his audience has two identities notice first their spiritual identity to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. As as was Paul's custom in his epistles, we acknowledge the spiritual position and responsibility of the reader. Notice he first calls them saints. Now this title is one which is unique to those who have been redeemed. Again, I'll, I'll make a statement here. I don't want to be misunderstood. But often there are believers who refer to themselves as though even from this sense, and I understand what's being stated, and, and I, I'll be, I'm gracious in this, in what I'm about to say. I'm, I'm not being dogmatic in a sense because I understand the message that is attempting to be conveyed. Often people will make statements like this who've been redeemed. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, that's not what Scripture says about you. You know what Scripture says about you? You are a saint. Now, saint does not mean we're perfect. That's not even the implication. That's what we've redefined it to mean, which is not what it means. But saint is one that is a holy one or who's been set apart. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not that you're... And, and here's, here's... Though I understand the humility in saying I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I understand that. Let me also say to you, I believe that Jesus Christ as my Redeemer is sufficient and that if any man be in Christ, guess what he is? He's not just a sinner saved by grace. He's a new creature. I have been declared and made to be a saint, one who is set apart, one who is holy unto God. Does that mean that I always act in holiness? Some of you look a little baffled. Ask my wife and she'll answer after we're finished this morning. I do not always answer in holiness or act in holiness. That is true, I don't. And I confess that before you. But that has nothing to do with the fact that God has already set me apart unto himself. And I think one of the dangers in not understanding this is that people then begin to act as though they are sinners saved by grace who are attempting to become saints. When the real definition is this, I am a saint who just still happens to sin. And I understand and see that truth. And so I've been set apart. That's what it means. So Paul doesn't say, you who are trying to become saints, are you sinners that are now now saved by grace? No, he says saints he calls them that why because they are believers and followers of jesus christ and again the title saints means holy or holy one and the implication of the title is that of the position that's been granted by god as he has declared those whom he has redeemed to be set apart or consecrated unto himself this title is also used to remind us of the responsibility we have as those who are redeemed, to live lives which are set apart unto God and God alone. Again, think of it like this, and we kind of use this, I'm afraid, too often as an excuse or would be tempted to. If I am merely a sinner saved by grace, that means, okay, I'm a sinner. That means I still really, sin is just something I'm going to do, though I'm saved by grace. No, I have been set apart unto God, but I recognize, though I have been set apart unto God, I still sin. But I have no excuse for that sin. Why? Because I am set apart unto God. He has declared me holy, made me holy in his son. And therefore I am to walk. Remember what the scripture says? As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. So as I have been redeemed, I am to walk worthy of that redemption. Not meaning worthy in the sense that it's something I could ever attain. But I am to walk according to The power of this redemption is what that's referencing. This title is used to remind us of this responsibility. Paul's opening address to the Corinthian church is an example of this title being used as a reminder of the responsibility we have before God to live consecrated lives to Him alone. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul wrote, "...unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints." Positionally, he says, you're already sanctified, this is done, you are set apart, now you are called to be saints. You're called to live according to the sanctification that God has performed in your life, sanctifying, separating you unto himself. Then Paul second says, faithful brethren in Christ. The adjective faithful means reliable and believing. And despite the heresy which was invading the church... Right, those who were attempting to persuade the Colossian church to deviate from their belief in the preeminence and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, these believers remain faithful or full of faith in Christ. Remember, when we, when we see faithful, understand what's being said there. In reality, that, that's not just saying that you should be steadfast, it's much more than that. It is saying you should be full of faith or you are full of faith. Faithful, full of faith. Then, number two, their earthly identity. So they had the spiritual identity. They were saints, they were believers, faithful believing brethren, but then he says, which are at Colossae. Now, while this church was identified by their geographical location, obviously, it bears great weight regarding both the content of this letter and the manner in which Paul writes this letter. This was only an identifier of where they were, not what or who they were. I point this out due to the importance of the distinction between that which defines us and that which describes us. You need to understand this truth. They were described to be the church or believers at Colossae. This described who they were in terms of their location and setting apart identity for them in that respect. But this is not what or who they really were. They were saints and faithful brethren. That's who they are defined to be. It was not the description of where this church was located that provided them identity truly, but it was their spiritual position that defined who the church was. Then the letter C. Paul identified the unity shared between himself and the Colossian church. Notice he says, Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Richard Milik commented on Paul's greeting. He said, Grace pointed the readers to the basis of their new life in Christ, as well as the state of grace in which they were to conduct their lives. Peace was a prayer for the general well-being of the readers. So the basis of Paul's spiritual identity and of these believers at Colossae was God's unmerited favor, which he had freely bestowed, obviously, upon them. And it was this grace of which Paul wrote. He then refers to God's peace towards them, which was Paul's expression of his desire for these believers to continue in the depths of, and the riches of the grace of which he just spoke to continue therein. After expressing his desire for the church to continue in the grace and the peace of God, Paul then declared the common ground which they shared. Notice he identifies them again in this unity. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had never met these believers. They had never met Paul. But yet, notice the unity that they share regardless. From God, this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity between Paul and the church of Colossae was on the basis of the relationship they possessed with God alone. Paul stated, God, our Father... Together, our Father, this relationship could only exist in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he goes on to say, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be mindful that we as the church at Colossae, we too are surrounded by and in some cases inundated with those who continually attempt to detract from the preeminence and the sufficiency of our lord jesus christ yet paul's greeting to the church at corinth served as a reminder to them to live according to their god-given call and position they possessed in jesus christ just as this church was identified by god having set them apart unto himself so we too are called to live our lives sanctified unto the lord despite those who would deny and attempt to marginalize the preeminence and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus, we as the Colossian church are to remain faithful. We are to remain full of faith in Christ. That is the whole point here. Full of faith in the preeminence. Full of faith in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. It should be our deepest desire that we not be known by our worldly identity but that it is our spiritual identity which defines us. Let me explain what I mean by that. It is absolutely unimportant that anyone really knows that you attend or are a member or visit New Life Baptist Church in Yulee, Florida. But it is absolutely imperative that they know that you are a saint and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Let your identity not be found in whom you associate with. Let not be in some geographical location, but let your identity be understood to be in Christ alone. Period. May we remain faithful in Christ as we continue in this grace of God that's been bestowed unto us and provided for us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have an identity. You are known as or by something. You have an identity. The question is, in, where, where does, in, in what does your identity lie? What is it that truly defines who you are? Not just where you go to church, not just what you do. No, who you are. Because when Paul says they were saints and faithful brethren, he is saying this is who they are. They happen to be at Colossae, but that's not who they are. They are saints and faithful brother. And hence, Paul was able to say this grace and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful to know that in God's eternal redemptive purpose and plan, those who are redeemed, He has made us to be a part of something that is eternal, that is far greater not only than any one of us, but is far greater than any one local body because of the redemption in His Son. May we identify with and in the person of Christ. Remember this, you don't make Him anything. You don't make Him first in your life. If you think you make Jesus first in your life, what you're really declaring is, Lord, I am Lord, I will make you what I want you to be. You acknowledge who he is. This is who God the Father has declared him to be and made him to be. So may we acknowledge humbly the truth of our Lord.